From the American School Counselor Association, this is I Hear You Say, a podcast for school counselors and other leaders in education. I'm Jen Walsh, Director of Education and Training here at ASCA. ASCA's School Counselor of the Year Award honors professionals who devote their careers to advocating for the nation's students and addressing their academic and social-emotional development and college and career readiness needs. Today, we sit down with the 2023 School Counselor of the Year, Meredith Drawn. Meredith is the school counselor at B. Everett Jordan Elementary School in Graham, North Carolina, a recognized ASCA model program school that serves 355 students in grades K through 5. Welcome, Meredith, and congratulations. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I hear that your mom was a school counselor. How did her experience impact your journey to school counseling? Well, I would love to have this like lovely story that I like always dreamed of being a school counselor with her, but honestly, it kind of led me away from school counseling. Our personalities are very different in many ways. And also she was just the best example. And so I didn't really think like I would even try to live up to her shoes. And so everywhere, like we went as a kid, there was a former student or a parent or like a student, a current student, right? And she loved catching up and seeing them at dinner or at the grocery store. And my personality is much more of like a curbside pickup grocery shopper, right? (laughs) So I don't really excel at like, all of the like small talk in the grocery store or anything like that. And so that was just like what I saw as the counseling profession being was just like full time on at all times. And she is just the biggest people person ever. And so she was amazing at that. But I took a health psychology class at Wake Forest and learned a lot about the brain and its resiliency is just so interesting to me. So I started kind of researching careers And school counseling was actually one of the first things that I saw. And so getting to like have conversations with her about what school counseling really was versus what a 12-year-old's perspective of school counseling was, right, was so valuable. And so while I did not really get her genes as far as like being a morning person, right, (laughs) 7 a.m., lots of people are hugging you. We did, we do share genes for just like genuinely caring about people, right, and like wanting to sit with people and like walk with them through life. And so I think that that really stuck out to me as something that school counselors get to do and just caring about people to their core, um, especially kids. And so being able to see her do that growing up um, and have that perspective is really just invaluable. So the different energy levels and all of that good stuff was not as important as I thought it would be because at the end of the day, We both have a passion for school counseling, and I got to learn from what I consider the best one. Well, just like all students are different with their own unique personalities, stories, life experiences, and strengths and weaknesses, all school counselors are different too. So when I moved down to the elementary level, I was super nervous because I had always been at like the high school or middle school level. And I like speak sarcasm pretty fluently. And that's like a way that I can bond with people. And so I was very nervous. But as it turns out, like listening is important no matter what age person you're speaking to, right? And just again, knowing that you genuinely care that comes off regardless of, you know, what your tone or personality sometimes can be. There's room for everyone. And Every school counselor can kind of bring a different perspective and a different personality to the table. 
Absolutely. So in many of our conversations, you've talked about community and the importance of each part of a community. What does community mean to you and how has community played a role in your equity and systemic change work? Yeah, I think as someone who, like a lot of school counselors, are just fans of doing it themselves and, you know, making sure that it's done right, you kind of quickly realize that you cannot reach all the kids that you need to by taking that like strategy. I think that like supportive communities are one of the keys to positive student outcomes. And so even research suggests that students who connect with at least one trusted adult in school, they're more resilient and they have a stronger sense of well-being which is what we want for all kids, right? And so while that one trusted adult can be within the school, we, like at my school personally, we only have 50 adults and our school has 355 children, right? So there's quite an imbalance there. And so I think community support is vital um, in supporting all kids. My parents were incredibly supportive of me growing up. I was a very, had a very privileged childhood, but I still had other adults in my community that I leaned on and I built relationships with them. Uh, And they still, you know, even now greatly impact my life. And so while not all of us have a child in the school system, right, everyone in the community benefits from an educated society. So I hold the belief and I kind of like speak with our community that it's important for all to kind of do our part. And so I think that that plays a unique role in my counseling program. For example, Um, We were talking about, you know, equity and systemic change after the pandemic, right? And the total school shutdown. And so I was really looking as we entered back into the school of ways that we could get community back reoriented because at my school, it's just super important that that occurs just as help for our students, help for our staff. Um, And again, we all benefit from an educated society. And so one of our local universities, Elon University, They had an existing tutoring program, but it was more for our central schools and our urban schools. And so they received a grant after COVID to kind of help expand that. And again, at the same time, I was looking for ways to get our community involved. They were looking for ways to expand into our community. So we kind of chatted with each other, right? And had those crucial conversations of, hey, let's try this, right? Like, let's, let's do this opportunity and I will kind of be the school liaison to help make this program work here, even though we are we are probably 35 minutes from Elon. And so the program is called It Takes a Village. And what happens is Elon students came to our school each week in the fall and the spring, and they worked with our students on math and reading concepts. And it was really helpful because at some point in the program, like kids used to have to go to Elon, the campus, to be tutored. Um, And the grant provided transportation for Elon students to be brought out to us, which is very helpful. They also provided a dinner for everyone involved to take home with them. And the kids left with dinner, tutors and teachers left with dinner. And it really was just the perfect partnership and just a really good representation of how communities can get involved with local schools, right? To, at this point, they were helping students kind of recover from learning loss. And so... A lot of our students that got to work with them were more of our bubble students, so they may not get individual attention during the day because we don't have all those resources in the building, but they were able to get that one-on-one help with the tutors um, who came out, which was really cool. So it sounds like you collaborated with others in the building in order to get this program started. What did you do to gain buy-in? Yeah, so I feel like I say this in like every interview I do, but 
I work with like the best in the business at B. Everett Jordan Elementary. Our teachers, our support staff, our community partners. I just am super lucky to work with people that I do. I think that working in silos can be really lonely for everyone, right? And then, but it also hinders our results. And so bringing all different expertises like to the table um, is kind of a specialty of school counseling, right? I look at the school counselor role as many things, but one of them is like the resource hub. So I get to build relationships with different supports in and out of our building and then kind of plug them in where necessary. And so while I was like the school liaison for the village project and speaking directly to Elon, there were so many people involved that helped make it a success. So all of our classroom teachers kind of helped by giving out stickers and flyers to our students each Monday and Tuesday. And that really helped increase our attendance level at the tutoring. We had over 90% attendance each night, which is um, really great. And that doesn't happen if like a sticker doesn't go on the shirt, right? Or like a flyer doesn't go home to say like, tutoring's tomorrow, prepare, right? Our school instructional specialists help teachers that were involved come up with appropriate content for the students in their group. So this is our support personnel who can see where every kid is in the building, right? They, she, she can see their M class, their Ames web data, all that good stuff. So she can really help to say, okay, this is what they need to work on, or they might need to work on decoding here, right? And then the teachers were able to work with the Elon students to help facilitate that targeted instruction to that student. And they put together different packets for students and all that good stuff. And so the tutors were then placed with students that they maybe had a relationship with or to build a relationship with. And then each night that we had tutoring, the teachers filled out just little information sheets that I had created that said like who their tutor was and what they had worked on that night to kind of help follow that up at home, right? So we're supporting extra learning at home. What I love about it is that everyone has a part, right? And everyone kind of like having a hub to help people at different stages of the intervention is crucial. So if I can be that hub, because I understand enough about each little part that has to happen, that is something that I'm willing to do and something that I see is very valuable. And it was super important to me that not just students who could get transportation to be Everett Jordan were invited, right? Or not just students who their parents could afford tutoring were invited because I wanted to make sure it was free completely. And I wanted to make sure that our demographics mirrored our population. And so I did work with our principal and our school instructional uh, specialist to really make sure that the kids who were invited mirrored those demographics and were still valuable. It was still valuable time for them, right? That hour and a half of their week was going to really help recover that learning loss that we may have seen. That was really important to me. We had spoken with one of our bus drivers about potentially like having a, a second load, right, of uh, students if someone needed transportation, but we actually were able to get transportation for all students kind of figured out. And so that, along with providing dinner and just really removing all the barriers to learning that I could for all of our population was really important to me. Yeah, definitely. At one point you said as one of few common points in most communities, schools serve the population in so many different ways. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that every community has different things in it, right? Like there's churches and there's schools and there's, you know, a post office or, or something like that. But not every community has 
equal resources, right? Has equity and resources. Whether you're rural and it's like so far out that that doesn't make sense. Whether you're urban and there's really no room, right, to make that happen. Federally, like we're required to have schools, right? And so there is a school in each community and at each level. And that is such like one of the few common threads that we have left. And so I think that as a society, pouring into our schools is so important because that is like everyone's going to get that education, right? Everyone's going to be able to have that as a touch point of support, whereas everyone might not be able to have a teen pregnancy center or something like that in their community that that resource might be a lot further away. And so really, since we are a smaller community, the school is one of the main hubs there where you know, we still have generations, you know, sending their kids to our school because they are still living in the area or, you know, they've taken over their parent farm or something like that. And so it's cool to see um, how that has remained over time as just a hub of the community. Yeah, definitely. And I think for me, that was such a reflection piece, just thinking about the impact that school counselors can have in the school building within a community. Yeah. Like when you think about where you can do the most good, right? Like where, where you can have the biggest impact, like school is such a major touch point for everyone. And so when you think about kind Mm -hmm. of bang for your buck. So speaking of community and you kind of touched on this a little bit, B. Everett Jordan Elementary School is in a very rural community. What are some unique challenges you face being a school counselor in a rural area? And what do you do to work through those challenges? Yeah, so it's definitely rural. Um, and it, <laughs> I think all rural schools are not equal either, right? So it comes with certain challenges depending on your ground level. And so like whether that is shooing away the goats and chickens in the morning and afternoon, that's you know, while we're doing dismissal or arrival that wander over from our neighbors. Um, We love them, but we can't have chickens outside or, you know, having when I do a career day, I have to invite professionals from really like all over the county or and sometimes all over the state um, and even make that virtual because there are only so many professionals in our community. Right. And so I think there's definitely unique challenges facing rural schools. You also have less outside resources or when you're sending a student for like a mental health referral, you might be sending them 20 minutes away, right? And so I think that the biggest challenges that I face are making sure that I fully understand the barriers and what I'm asking this community to do if I do refer out or if I do say like, well, here's a place for help. Because while it seems easy to me, I have a car, right? I can drive. I can drive 20 minutes away. I have a schedule where I get off at, you know, 3.30 and I I don't do shift work where Mm -hmm. I can't call in, those types of things. Whereas a lot of our parents, you know, work at a nearby like Honda plant or are, you know, working outside of the community. So when we're calling parents to come in and meet with us, they may be driving 35 minutes away from their work site, right? And so I think having a good understanding of, of what you're asking of people is the biggest challenge and making sure that you are looking at all aspects from their perspective instead of just, oh, well, they don't want to come or they don't want to do this, right? And so in order to reduce some of those barriers, I've tried to bring people in, okay? So whether that's like a school-based mental health professional through our district coming in, they are able to drive 35 minutes. It's not great, right? Like it's it's not the most bang for their buck because they're driving 
pretty far out to see one kid. But if that's what that kid's need, kid needs, it's my job to advocate for that. And it's my job to say like, hey, like this is what we've gone through and I really feel like this might be beneficial. Can we have a child and family team meeting about this? Can that be virtual before we start services? Those types of things. So I think offering options is much more important in a rural community because you just don't always have the resources or the time and availability, right? To to maybe do what you think would be best for kids. And so just having that understanding of what everyone is going through and what a rural community looks like. We're not just going down the block to our teen advocate center, right? We're not we're not just going to pick up school supplies at Walmart because Walmart's 25 minutes away. And so making sure that we are cognizant of that and supporting where we can is more important than ever, I think, in a, in a rural school setting. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, putting yourself in, in others' shoes, I think is such a great point. And it also just goes back to collaboration and community and advocacy. You know, those are just themes that we so often talk about, but we talk about them for a reason, right? Yeah. It's so important. And really, no matter what setting you are in, right, those things are important. Um, But they might look different, right, depending on the setting. Yes. Yeah. So shifting gears a bit, one area of focus in your program is increasing self-efficacy in your students. This was actually one of your annual student outcome goals this year. Can you talk a little bit about that goal and how did you determine it? And what were some of the interventions or activities that you used with this targeted group of students? Yeah, so the goal actually came from a few places. Again, we had been back from school shutdown for almost a year, I think. And we were noticing, so our district does a panorama survey, which is an SEL survey um, that our students take in third through fifth grades. And just as a whole, we have focused a lot as a school on learning loss, but we don't always dig into what's kind of causing it and what's keeping it from rebounding, like kids from rebounding from it, except for just a general idea of like COVID, right? The pandemic, the pandemic, school closure. And some of that is true. Like there were some learning loss because of lack of ability of instruction, right? We couldn't connect with children right away. We had to get hotspots and Chromebooks and all that stuff. But as I was looking at some of the students' data, I found a pattern of students who really should be able to rebound from learning loss pretty easily. Maybe they were like some of our higher students before the pandemic and were now kind of on the bubble or um, really had gone down to pretty at risk. And when I say they should be able to rebound from learning loss, when I look at their protective factors, family support or sibling support or having connectivity, right, having those opportunities and their attendance, like maybe they attended every day of school online, but they weren't able to get the information or weren't able to show mastery on the information. And so when I looked at that, I found a pattern that a lot of them were fourth and fifth grade girls and their data was incredibly low of their belief that they could do something, their belief that they could succeed in something. And so it stood out pretty, like it was almost 50% below some of their peers their belief of their ability to succeed, which is what self-efficacy is, right? And so in talking with them, I did, I knew I wanted to do a group. I didn't really know what kind of group. So I did just a little group screening. And in talking to them, I learned that with virtual learning, they could access the content all day long, 
but their frustration tolerance was challenging academic work was allowed to become so much lower because in virtual learning, you don't really have to push through the struggles, right? You could just close your computer or turn off your video. And that was that. And so I realized that we needed to build back that resiliency and that raise their frustration tolerance because in the classroom, that's not an option, right? And like with a tough conversation with a friend that you can't just like power down. That's not a thing in real life. And so, you know, their academic and personal struggles were not just seen by me. I think that when I did, I reached out to teachers and parents um, and just other stakeholders and all of them had kind of noticed a shift in like, They're being successful, but when things get hard, they're done. Like they cannot push through it. And so I used a curriculum called Girls in Real Life Situation, um, and it's research-based to kind of help students gain self-esteem, self-confidence, and ultimately lead to that Mm self-efficacy. And they basically needed to believe in themselves and their abilities again because they hadn't had to for so long. And with targeted exercises and just kind of talking through and really being honest with them, you know, they're they're not in 10 years old. They get it. They know why they might have lost that in the first place. Or they know that when something's hard, they tend to just stop. They don't use a coping strategy. They don't use like a perseverance skill or anything like that. And so we met for eight weeks and really just kind of built them back up and introduced harder things and uncomfortable things in a smaller and safer setting. While we might have like an undesired task, it wasn't in a whole classroom full of people. It was just the six of us, right? So we could talk through that more. We could say, okay, like I'm feeling uncomfortable. What can I do? Or this is hard. What can I do? Right. I may not know this yet, right? Yet being that operative word. So it was a lot of things kind of coming together, like growth mindset and perseverance to really build their self-efficacy back. That was just really important to me because at fourth and fifth grade, I'm not saying that hasn't happened in all of our grade levels and with a lot of our kids, but with my fourth and fifth grade girls, like I'm about to send them to middle school, right? And I need them to be prepared. (laughs) And so I felt like it was very, you know, personal and very strategic to pick that group of girls because I needed to make sure that they were prepared to succeed at the next level. Right. So it was a critical time. Yes, exactly. And most of them, I think all but one really came out of that group with kind of a newfound confidence and growth Mm -hmm. and all, and the other one, like we were able to get more support for, right? Like there were other things going on than just self-efficacy. And so after having that kind of strategic tier two instruction, we were able to say, okay, like we've had this explicit instruction on self-efficacy and self-esteem and self-confidence, and we still are seeing some struggles. Maybe it's time to do like a mental health evaluation or see what else is really going on. So we were able to kind of meet with parents and discuss that on a different level for some of those who maybe did not respond to the group like the others um, did and show growth. Mm-hmm. How did the outcome of this program impact your work going forward? Well, I think that it honestly showed me, I probably could have done a core lesson on it. It really did expand my instruction a bit. I did, I did do a lesson last year on self-efficacy and growth mindset, but not really as in depth, right? Mm -hmm. And so I have focused more this year on building that back in students, building that confidence back and becoming more aware of this is how I'm feeling, but that doesn't mean I have to stay there. And so a lot of it really does in self-efficacy, a lot of it is is the feeling, right? It is the belief in your ability to succeed, not if you actually do succeed. 
And so that those feelings and the, those beliefs, I realized that we had a lot of work to do for our students to gain that back because they just hadn't had to use that skill. They hadn't had to learn it or anything like that. It was such an easy out that they could take. And a lot of them took it, you know, and that's human nature, right? We're going to, we're going to look for the easiest path. And so what that has done with my work this year is just try to honestly go back to basics a bit, right? Of what we might've learned in in kindergarten through second grade, we are reviewing in, in fourth and fifth grade because you don't use those skills, you lose those skills. That has kind of been where it has led. I also like have other people What's funny, I have other students like asking to do the group because I think they see sort of a difference. And even some of the students who were in it, they're like, are we going to do that again? I always try to make my groups super fun and like enticing, but that was probably the first one. I always have kids coming back saying like, when are we going to meet again? Right. Even after the group has done our closeout, but for other kids not in the group to ask like, can we do this activity? Can we do this? That started happening and I was like, wow, that's exciting that they are not only taking it to heart, but now sharing with other people some of the things that they have learned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sounds like such great work that you're doing and so impactful for your students. Just for something fun, if you had to pick a theme song to describe you, what would it be and why? These are always the hardest questions for me. And I also listen to all sorts of music. So I think I have like really interesting theme songs on some day. Um, and then some days it's just a fun beat to move to. But in this season of life, a song that I keep kind of using to kind of pump me up would be Whole Lot of Heart by Ingrid Michaelson. And I, I say pump me up. It's really not a pump up song. Like it's pretty somber, but it's also calming. And it's like, even though some things are coming at you, like if you like work from your heart and you like keep your spunk, right? Like you're going to get there. And it talks about we've been on hard roads before and we can like use that to learn from that and keep going. One of the words is we've been there before so we can do better. And I love the idea of knowing better so that you can do better. And that's just something that I've personally really worked towards the last few years. It's not just letting the first thing get to me, right? But really just keep going and using, knowing that all of my actions come from the heart is important to me. Awesome. Thank you. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. One of those like hidden gems, but she's great. Yeah. So we ask all of our podcast guests the same question. What inspires or motivates you? I feel like I get motivated by a lot of things, whether it's fresh sunflowers, right? Or coffee. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the school setting, like specifically, I try to keep my sunflowers and my coffee there, but just the tiniest things of seeing kids grow and learn and just get it. I'm not a parent, but I like kind of equate it to like when you're, when your child walks for the first time, you're like, oh my God, like that's amazing, right? And we're teaching them to walk in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. And so last year, I like really might cry talking about this, but I had my first full class go through B. Everett Jordan. So they came in as tiny kindergartners and they left me as like fifth graders and like these maturing adolescents. And it was all the magic in between those years that happened, whether it was going through the pandemic, right? And reaching out to them. And again, we're rural. So some of my pandemic was like delivering packets to their porch, right? And doing porch check-ins and getting to know them at that level and just all of that magic in between kindergarten and fifth grade really captured my heart 
to see the growth that just happens, right? It just happens. And it takes a lot of hard work, but you don't really remember all of the work. You just remember the good times and the little steps that they learned along the way. And next year will be my first group of seniors coming back. Um, we have our senior clap out. And we do that every year where our seniors from our local high school come back and walk the halls in their cap and gowns. And it gives our kids just a little something to you know, look forward to and, and aspire to. And it gives our seniors just that final send off. And I am positive I will be in a puddle of tears. <laughs> I cannot wait to see them and just celebrate, you know, how hard they have worked because being a kid is not easy. I think as adults, we kind of look back and think like, man, being a kid was easy if I could only go back, right? No bills, nothing like that. But I think when you're in it, right? If we listen to them, like when you're in it, it can get really hard. And so just celebrating this milestone, I'm really excited about that. That's kind of motivating me lately. It's like, how can I make that super special for them? Because even just being the tiniest part of their life, right, and their cheer squad was just such an honor and just so motivating to me to just keep going and, and keep doing the work that we do, you know? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Meredith, for joining us today. And thank you all for listening. We hope to have you back on our next episode, but until then, be sure to check out our website, schoolcounselor.org, for school counselor resources. We'd also love to engage with you on all of our social media platforms. Find us on Facebook at the American School Counselor Association, Twitter at Aska Tweets, and Instagram at WeAreAska. Thanks and hear from you soon. I'm Jen Walsh, and this has been I Hear You Say, the podcast from the American School Counselor Association.